listening to Traumedy, the podcast that helps you transmute your trauma with comedy. It is not a replacement for trauma therapy, but it will help you get by between sessions. I'm Nancy Norton. I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian. I am a registered nurse in a couple of states. Full transparency. I have shifted to healing with humor these days. It's better this way. Therapeutic humor is real. It actually does help. I have peer-reviewed studies to back it up. I would love to bring the power of humor to your conference, to your event. Reach out through my website, nancynorton.tv. Thanks for tuning in to Traumedy, a higher power production. Welcome to Traumedy. My guest this week is an amazing writer and producer of comedy and... Comedian. Comedian. Yeah, comedian. That, that, that all adds up to comedian. <laughs> and the son of a comedian. True. Oh my gosh, that's rare. I haven't met anyone yet that's offspring of a comedian. Please welcome Charlie Nadler. Hi, Thank Charlie. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for it's being here. It's great to here. see you. Oh, yeah, I'm in your house. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here in your own house. <laughs> We're sitting here. I'm looking at some beautiful, are these the Berkshire, are these mountains? Yeah, these are mountains, Berkshire mountains. You say Berkshire and I say Berkshire. Yeah, Berkshire is the local pronunciation. Berkshire is kind of the. That sounds like an Irish thing. The Shires. Where's a Shire? Shire. No, that's more of like a hobbit. Yes. Well, I'm hobbit sized. (laughs) You're just as adorable as a hobbit. I have a hobbit's hairline, I think. (laughs) I haven't seen your feet. I hope those are socks. (laughs) These are, yeah, I'm wearing two layers of socks. (laughs) And there are two cats that are around, so you may hear a little cat action. Totally. While we're here at Charlie's. And thanks for bringing me to your area to come share some of the old Nance comedy for a good cause. Thank you excited yeah me too so i told you about the premise of traumedy which is to help folks to help folks play with their pain basically what comedians do naturally take our pain and play with it and mix a little light in with the darkness of trauma yeah so people don't get stuck i don't know anything about any of your trauma and it's up to you how much you want to share but (laughs) sometimes what we do with comedians is we work backwards we might say oh play this bit and then I'll tell you, like, you may not know there's trauma behind it. Sure. Or we can just riff about a trauma you have, and we can write some jokes about some trauma if you want on yeah. the spot. Yeah, I like that kind of idea because I have some jokes about this thing, but it's something that I really want to delve into more as part of my identity um, on stage and just material-wise. So I think your follow-up questions will be helpful for that kind of a brainstorming session if that makes sense yeah because i think you'll have questions that'll lead to other parts of the story that'll be interesting to think about and riff on and all of that so yeah so is there Um, something like one particular thing that happened or is it a general it's one particular thing so it's my parents divorce and so what we'll start at the very beginning so my parents uh separated when i was about 12 and what happened was everything was fine and they didn't they didn't really fight in any way like they were very you know civil with each other so i never had a heads up you know some people are like oh of course my parents are getting divorced um so they they were totally fine civil one day i went to a birthday party and I was 12 years old and this girl came up to me in my class and she said, Oh my God, Charlie, your parents are getting divorced. And that was the first time I knew anything of this, but because I'd never, because this was just this person I knew, I, my reaction was what you're, you're, you have false information. It was basically like a fake news kind of response. I went to England the next day on a planned trip to, with my grandparents. So I left didn't think about it, came home a week later, and my parents that night said, we have something to talk to you about at dinner. And they said, we're splitting up. And so I got scooped by a classmate, and that is something I never really will know. I've talked to my parents a little bit about this, but there's no real productive conversation on how that happened. Um, But then that devolved into just this really weird adolescence where their hearts were in the right place. They wanted 
they wanted my childhood to be as normal as possible. So we, we stayed together until I was 18. So they had separate rooms so from 12 to 18. So the, the marriage changed. I mean, or did they divorce or did they just live separately? They just lived separately. They finally divorced when I went to college. They basically waited for me to leave the house and then they formally, you know, did the paperwork and, and got separate places and, and all that. And we should say, because you told me last night, you're an only child. Only child. So man, I think when there's just you, you are the family. Yeah. And it's a, it's a lot of pressure on you too to act normal. Like they, mm-hmm. there's this mutual understanding or this unspoken rule. Like we want yeah. you to have the most normal childhood. Can you act normal? Can you just act like this is all normal? I don't know. Totally. Did you have a lot of pressure to pretend that it didn't yes. bother you? And I was also a very self-conscious, shy person as a kid up until really my mid twenties when I started doing comedy. And that also helped me just become a little bit more in tune with other people. But it was one of those things where I, um, because they wanted this veneer of we'll have one house together, I sort of played along and didn't talk about it with anyone and also didn't admit that my family was broken. So I sort of lived this lie that, yeah. oh, my family said, and I even remember sometimes people would come to me and be like, I heard your parents split up and be like, well, you live in the same house. Like argue that like you're wrong. You know, wow. I would sort of just deny it slash bury it. Because I, I, you know, I was worried kids would make fun of me or judge my family or whatever dumb reason that a kid has. Being different is hard as yeah. a kid, I think, and or feeling less than. I've talked about that yeah. on this podcast before, too. Just like with Christy having a disability or yeah. me having this lazy eye or what I mean having something really different about you that makes us feel less than yeah is hard and especially though you can't even get to a resolution with it because a lot of kids I know trauma I mean divorce is really traumatic for kids and I never I didn't go through that so I don't know but but at least you could get to a place of resolution right but with you this ongoing facade yeah and it was it was the nineties. It's still, we still weren't that progressive in terms of having services for kids. Like it, it wasn't like a kind of a common instinct as is now where, Oh, this kid's going through this hard thing. We should find someone for him to talk to. So, you know, there's no therapy available. And it's not like my parents would, I mean, I think if I, maybe I also would just dealt with it. Okay. In a way where they didn't think, I'm sure they would have sent me to someone if they, if they needed really thought I needed it. But but there was that too. And with the only child thing, there was no one, I mean, I had a dog, I had a cat, like I had no, <clears throat> no one to talk to about it. Um, and I wasn't comfortable talking to my friends about it, but you know what I was saying about trying it's to keep it like I'm kind of a everything's secret. fine. Yeah. So that, that line, you're only as sick as your secrets kind of thing mm. where, and I don't know, in some ways it's, it's a curse and blessing and a curse to be good at faking stuff. You know, yeah. where it's like, especially you know, if you're, you're a highly sensitive person or I don't know, I don't want to say you're a highly sensitive person, but you, you, to me, you come across as a very conscientious, I can just feel that energetically with you that you're very kind hearted, very gentle person. You know, you want things to go well around you and in your home, your home feels really intentional. And, and yet also like, it's not, robotic it's 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 yeah there's just a really sweet vibe here like yeah the way you. that there's so many cat <laughs> things y'all you have i wish you could see like how many beautiful like cat hammocks <laughs> and clawing things and just like a gymnasium like this is a cat yeah. heaven in here yeah i'm very appreciative the cats let us live in this house <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny. We were just talking about how we were, we've, well, I don't, I don't want to out you with your uh, Hashimoto's. <laughs> we can, we can edit That's this out. That's a HIPAA violation right there. <laughs> it, is, it is a total HIPAA violation. Do you want me to edit this out? No, 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 you... no. I want the record to state I have Hashimoto's disease and I take the brand name drug for it. <laughs> well, we were just talking about, we both have Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disease of the thyroid. Yeah. Now, I live in Boulder, so I have all these like spiritual, there's a throat chakra. I believe, I love that that makes you laugh. I don't know how that, I don't know if that flies here in the Berkshire, Berkshires, 
See, even when I say it, I sound Ozarky though. <laughs> I don't say Berkshire right. Berkshire. Yeah, Berkshires. Yeah. Really? Sure. Like, sure. like you got it. Sure. Oh, sure. Sure. I, I don't know. Somehow it still sounds twangy when I say it. Berkshires. But all I'm saying is from my integration of mind, body, spirit, like I believe, this is my belief that we are spiritual beings, you know, having an earth experience. But I think it's about not being able to speak my whole truth. Mm. And now that you've just told me this, I don't know what it is about if a certain energy center, like people that have heart problems, stomach problems, there's every chakra has an issue. Yeah. Hey, but anyway, it's a hard, I'm not going to try and sell you on that part, but no, just not being you. able to speak your whole truth. Your, sure. Most of your young life, your adolescent. And now, what about now? Does this feel like you're outing your parents right now? No, no, because I talk about it enough and I've talked about it enough on stage about, you know, living together and in that way and finding out the birthday party. I mean, there's some great stuff in there. Um, but yeah, not really. I mean, I don't feel, you know, and I, I think it's one of those things too, where I, I move past it. I just wish I was able to move past it quicker because I think it was something that I had to really grapple with into my twenties. And then I finally hit a point where it was just over and it was nice. Sure. Yeah. 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 10 years though. That's like 10 years. Yeah. That you dealt with something totally. kind of trying to nor normalize or just say it's one way and it's really another. Yeah. And I think that on a subtler level, so many of us, like my mother, I didn't know that this wasn't a thing. Like I, my mom, I do believe had some covert narcissism and I feel mm -hmm. for her because she was so scared of, of looking different or I mean, or the family being different. And again, um, <clears throat> one time I was saying to this friend of mine, you know how your mom is one way in public and another way at home. Sure. I thought all moms were. And she was like, no, <laughs> I was like, wait, you mean just my mom? What's your outside mom do? <laughs> no, my outside mom was so nice and generous. And then I would, yeah. she would run into a patient or something at the doctor. I remember being at, at the eye doctor where she took me a lot. And then one, she worked ophthalmology and one of her eye patients was there and she was so nice to her. We got in the car and I said, I'm, that was so nice that you ran into Mrs. What are, you know, Mrs. Smith, I'll make it up. I'm really, really creative on the spot. Mrs. So-and-so. And she said, oh, that woman. And she started complaining about her immediately. <laughs> and I was like, oh, kind of hurt my stomach. Yeah. Like, wait. So anyway. That's great. But I'm just saying on a subtler level. Yeah. What I want to know, too, is when this girl told you at the birthday party, was there... You just thought, oh, she has bad information. She's thinking of some other couple. I'm telling you, it's like when someone on the other side of the political spectrum comes up to you and says, you know that the government is bugging your house. Like, I mean, it's like, it's just, it was, she could not have been more off base. Like, yeah. I remember just being like, whatever, I'm gonna hang my coat up, eat some cake and like go see some <laughs> other people right now. Like it really, it wasn't even... I didn't even think about it during the trip at all. I don't remember the trip being ruined. I remember just being in London, like with my grandparents, having a good time. It was just. And you're getting ready to go to London again. I wonder. I if... know. I was thinking for this trip, what is my wife going to do to with this marriage? The callback, the callback. Yeah. Trip. What's happening? Do you have a, a sense of pending doom? Like, oh uh, no. We are going to celebrate 10 years dating while we're there. Oh, have you been to London with your wife before? Never. Oh. Yeah, first time. So this is a special trip. Yeah, it to is. To celebrate your 10-year of relationship. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this is kind of this is kind of interesting parallels, the 10 years and the 10 years that you had to yeah, keep true. something a secret. I was thinking about when kids tell you stuff that you, or anybody, like now adults, like you said, the government is bugging your house, which they are. Uh, through your I phone. I mean, they did create the internet. I do think about <laughs> that, you know? They always say, like, funny enough, the military created the internet, and they didn't mean to, and now we just haven't. I'm like, we, okay. No, we do know those, wire, <laughs> those wires work both directions. I do know this. Like, when I was getting ready for, I think it was my son's birthday or something, trying to figure out which guitar I wanted to give him. Yeah. I mean, immediately, guitars just started showing up ads for guitars to start showing up in my feed so i don't know yeah. they, but but back to like i remember my brother telling me about sex when i was eight 
and I was sure he made it up. I was like, nobody's going to do that. You're gross. <laughs> <laughs> don't even tell me this stuff. Yeah. Like this, you don't, I don't know, there's some, there's a superpower that kids have about sure. denial of like, no, sure. or Santa Claus does or doesn't exist. Totally. Or, I don't know. You celebrated Hanukkah and Christmas. Yep. Well, yeah, and the Santa Claus thing is a good analogy because I kind of felt like it was one of those things where if I believed they were still together in this house, maybe they were, you know, it was because that made it really hard when, when I turned 18 and they, you know, my mom told me at lunch one day that we were going to sell the house and they were going to get divorced once I went to school that, you know, after that summer, it was I relived that same 12 year old thing again in a way that was kind of irrational. Cause it's like, of course this is the next logical step, but it had never been said out loud. So it was just sort of like, what do you mean? You don't want to just be with your separated ex for the rest of your life. You know, like you have in the last six years. Yeah. Why can't we just keep this going? Yeah. Well, what's interesting that's coming up for me is also Cody Spiker is uh, one of my guests on here who is talking about, different kinds of relationships now the polyamory totally and i mean in some ways this is also you know communal living yeah where it's a different True. reframing the whole idea of co-parenting right. i mean i know gay people who co-parent who aren't in love that are like two lesbian couple uh, not two but a lesbian couple and then a gay male couple and maybe they're the sperm donor i'm guessing right. not the lesbians although that would be cool <laughs> I, i've tried let me tell you i've tried <laughs> my sperm count is so low but that <laughs> i have a joke i have a joke right now i just thought of like oh, i'm dating older men now and since i retired from lesbianism i've dated older men and uh, in the morning, my sperm count is higher than theirs. <laughs> There's a sense of equality. Okay. I had to get a joke in. All right. But the point is, in some way, but it would have been cool, but up against the context of all there was, was either yeah. a, what is I'm trying, nuclear family. Sure. Or the atom bomb. That, that the yeah, that is a hilarious poly concept of, I, I identify as someone who needs to be with an ex, a recent ex, each time, and then you can cycle into that spot. Yeah, yeah, because it's like just yeah. I need to wean off of that right. person. I can't just. It is divorce. Yeah. You know that actually sounds healthy to me. It's like withdrawal. Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah it's like uh, yeah. I'm in detox from Jeff. <laughs> yes, and I have to unlearn Jeff's idiosyncrasies, and now I've got to learn you know stands or uh, or shelly's because you know be op open to diversity totally or the non-binary aaron or chris yeah that's cool actually i actually think that sounds healthier because divorce is such a ripping experience yeah there's no way to do it right i mean i think and that's what you know that's why it's like some people when i tell that story about living together and everything they're they're like oh my goodness i can't believe that like you know they try to say that like they should have just gotten two separate places and i don't necessarily think that's that's right either I, I, there's no once it ends you're fucked you know <laughs> <laughs> it's just you just gotta unfuck it as quickly as possible that's what this podcast is about that's tromedy <laughs> unfucking what did you say last night unlocking the things that fucked you up yeah, yeah yeah and then integrating it yeah i think just i mean also just talking about that tension so maybe when you were inside the walls of your own home, was there a sense of normalcy inside? Was it more just when you had to relate it to other people? Yeah, I think it was one of those things where it was just when the other people, because, you know, people come over for a dinner party or whatever, we'd all be around. We still had all the same friends. It wasn't like they, they had separate lives necessarily. I mean, they did date discreetly and they were good about like not bringing people around. So that, that was nice. It wasn't like in front of me. But, but yeah, I mean, it just, it appeared like the Nadler family was all living together, but it would get weird with, it was a little more weird when we moved. Cause we actually, so we had a really nice house on Martha's Vineyard on the water and money dried up and we had to sell it and downsize to a more inland house. So we moved as a, oh. as a poly ex family uh, to this other house <laughs> and did the same thing. But even then I remember that being kind of weird because we, you know, we would only have the one extra bedroom at a time type of thing. You know, I think it was like a four bedroom and, 
And I even remember my dad basically lived in his office, but I always thought he lived in the guest room downstairs. Shows how oblivious I was as like a 16 year old or whatever. But I like way later found out that he like slept in that room upstairs instead of the guest room downstairs. And that was just sort of a weird, just weird things like that, where you're just so distant from it, but also know that like, you don't want people to be like, why is like Charlie's dad like up so late in that other room, you know, yeah. people would be over. Not that they would ever notice. But. And that's a big adjustment. If you had to go from having wealth and not thinking about money and then all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, you said the money dried up and then yeah. you had to adjust. That's a big adjustment to go it through, is. especially it, as a teenager, like all of a sudden, no, we can't afford certain things or did yeah. you have to think differently or was well, it? Well, I mean, this is a testament to my parents. I think they, you know, uh, I mean, they're fantastic. I, I, I love my parents. I, I have great relationships with them both always to this day. Um, yeah, so and they you tour did, with your dad. Uh, yeah, I mean, your dad is yeah. a comedy oh, writer. He's yeah. a com- he's a comedian. He wrote for television. They're both super funny. They're both super nice and sweet, empathetic people. Um, so they did everything oh. right. I think the the thing that's so because of that, I wasn't like the spoiled rich kid where I was like, Ugh, I can't go to Paris next year or whatever. You know, I ne- I never had any of those thoughts. And the good news is, we had to downsize, but it wasn't like. We didn't have food and we didn't have shelter. You know, I mean, I, you didn't I was feel lucky scared. In that you never sense. felt scared. I never for felt food scared. Or... It was more just surreal. I mean, one funny thing that I always remember is I came home once after school, shortly before we sold that house, and there was no electricity. I'd always come home after school and I would watch TV, you know, before I did my homework or whatever in my room. And I just remember coming home and going to my room and the TV didn't work. And then I discovered that we didn't have electricity and I found out it was because we were late on the bill. But here I am on a waterfront property that's worth today, like $3 million. At that point it was like half a million dollars, but like a crazy property squatting in my own house, you know, for, for better, you know, for, for 30 minutes. And, you know, I think I called my parents and they called the electric company and like the power came back on, but but okay. that kind uh, of give me a second to laugh about 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk trauma? Let's start at a 30-minute interval. 30-minute blackout. I had to go to the beach. I couldn't watch TV. I had to cross the street what to the beach. What was your favorite show that was not you were not able to see? That's the thing. I didn't even watch what? like good stuff. I feel like I just turned on ESPN or just watched some dumb highlights or something. Like, I don't even you know. You missed 30 minutes of highlights on yeah. ESPN. <laughs> you called your mom and they fixed it. But the fact I'm sorry. I know this is wrong. See, this is exactly what you should not do with traumedy. You're not supposed to ever minimize someone's trauma like that because... I am I'm a super asshole right now. No, no it is but it but the truth is I mean the truth is that the power was out. Yeah. And that was the foreshadowing of like we're actually gonna have to sell this property yeah. and live off the equity and move into a smaller, less expensive place. And, yeah. And but I had to just we had to acknowledge it for a second. That was thirty minutes. <laughs> it might have been forty five. <laughs> <laughs> But I have to say, I've never had that. I've never had that yeah. moment where I came home and the electricity was off. And that would actually like, wow, what? You know, that is yeah. taking you out of your whatever the norm was. But I do like this new term. We, what was it you came up? Poly, uh, poly new relationship? Uh, poly X or poly something. Poly X. Yeah. <laughs> I actually think there's something there. But again, it's that secret. It's that feeling of having to keep some, like, you know, whatever. I mean, I think so many of us do it in so many different ways mm-hmm. of masking. It takes so much energy. And also what happens when we mask is I feel like there's an energy that points inward that is shame. Yeah. Feeling ashamed totally. on some level is such a heavy uh, feeling. Totally. Yeah. And then how do we, like now as comedians, we are ripping the mask off and going, okay, here, let me just tell you yeah, the truth once yeah. and for all. But in in my own narrative, in my way, that I feel empowered at the same time. Yeah. And then it helps people. I get notes all the time from codependents and from people that have suffered narcissistic abuse and things that are super heavy, but the way I present it on stage, they can access it. I mean, Mm. I just had this very long, beautiful email from somebody up in Plattsburgh from my gig and saying, I can't believe how much I laughed. I've never felt this way, seen and understood and known and it was like 
so that you could give that, I'm sure there will be people in your audience that, or in this audience, on the traumaties that have divorce trauma. There's probably someone in your audience who lost electricity for half a day, and they... <laughs> think I am the biggest loser they've ever heard. They lost it for a whole hour. So they're like, oh, what is he complaining about? No, but that's that's the thing. I've had people say there is it. It's really about how it feels in your body. Like if there was a moment of it's almost like you said, getting blindsided and that shock, you know, that we don't you really can't compare the traumas to another trauma all all that it needs to know is at the up to that point you didn't even have the coping skills like right like say somebody who was raised in in an environment where all the kids in the neighborhood were on the edge of poverty and people's electricity and utilities are being shut off intermittently well they kind of grow up with a coping skill right it. and you didn't yeah and i think that's why there's so much thought put around young people being traumatized because of that same point of you something little happens and because you don't have those coping skills because you don't have a lot of skills you it becomes so amplified when you become an adult and so hard to shake off that that issue and i think that was my biggest that's why i like i think it really took until i was you know more of a fully formed adult to to get past a lot of what that did to me because it put a lot of pressure because my archetypes were them and it not working out and them seeming to be like really two great people I had never had a relationship yet until that point. So when I tried to have relationships with people, it's, I think that was just this dark cloud. Even my first girlfriend I ever had in college, it was just a terrible fit from the beginning. Like just so many fights started like irrationally that I had nothing to do with. And I, I dated this person for a couple of years. And I think it was because I was so terrified of, it not working in the same way I saw it not work for my parents instead of having the power to be like, no, like it's not working because it's not right. And it's okay for something not to be right. And that's natural. But instead I just didn't have, I didn't have the ability to break free of it. And that, that caused a lot of, I mean, you know, problems of just, you know, other trauma. Why did I put up with something that made me feel so bad for so long? Yeah. And that's something that in my recovery work as a codependent and, and an adult child of a dysfunctional family. And pretty much in this culture, most of our families are somewhat dysfunctional. But if you grew up in an environment where it's more important to stay together than to honor one's needs. Right. And one's own needs, you know, individual needs, like the need of the collective is more important and so when you're in a couple it's familiar that was home yeah that was you were just mimicking exactly what you were taught i guess and but what's funny is i, I got some therapy like i got like the united states version of therapy which is like three free sessions or whatever with most healthcare. so i got some therapy when i lived in la and the therapist was pretty insightful basically you know when i talked about some of these types of relationships where it was just obviously at face value not a good relationship for whatever reason she basically said oh yeah no it makes perfect sense knowing my backstory she said you seek out relationships that are doomed to fail so that you don't feel as shattered as you did from when your parents got divorced oh a preemptive strike yeah and that that checked out for me i mean obviously now i'm super happily married to someone who i you know deeply consider my soulmate so i got over that stuff yeah. And someone who treats me really well and vice versa. But but I think it it was a weird realization of like, yes, that really was rock bottom for me psychologically when that all happened when I was 12. And to have that kind of thing taken away from me again would have been just... Unbearable. Atom bomb. Yeah. Yeah. And so. we were... I never thought of that till earlier in this conversation about the nuclear family and the atom bomb but there is that sense Mm. of i never put those two together like that explosive loss feeling being lost yeah being lost um yes and i'm so glad i got to meet your wife and i don't know i'm avoiding saying her name out of privacy reasons i don't know why (laughs) but it does feel like y'all are just such a perfect match and she appreciates your sensitivity in fact one of the things she said about you was you know, when she reconnected with you, 
10 months before <laughs> it was beautiful like she was moving to LA and she's like I'm moving to LA in 10 months and I yeah. friend a mutual friend said you're out there and then you wrote this really conscientious letter about things to consider about where to live in LA mm. and I think that I could just when she was sharing that story that touched her heart that you cared enough to take yeah. a lot of time that's who you are and she's also clearly extremely like just conscientious I, I, don't know, yeah. I, I don't know if there's a, there's probably a better word but conscientious is it's a, a huge word. value you yeah know, that you, you not take. a lot of conscientious people out there mm. i know and you were out in la i know do you want to talk about your background or is sure. are you tired of talking about your background no no <laughs> with your dad and your work and i mean it's i was i have to tell you a little starstruck when i met you at the presidential comedy festival in rapid city and I loved your comedy. And then when you told me your background and your dad wrote for sitcoms and that yeah. you also worked for. Yeah, so at the very beginning, so my dad worked for Gary Marshall on, on almost all his shows from Happy Days On and then some of his movies, but uh, he and my mom met on Laverne and Shirley. So I always say that I exist because of a television show. My mom came in to pitch which in 2023, that story sounds a little problematic. My mom came in to pitch story ideas and ended up having a family. But, um, <laughs> uh, it's but, okay. but yeah, no, I mean, no, they had a genuine thing, but, um, yeah, so that he, he wrote on all those, all those shows. And, um, you know, I remember watching Nick and Knight and seeing his title on the screen and stuff. And this was after we had moved to the vineyard. So it was a very strange thing. They consciously didn't want to raise me in LA. It was a very, weird times in LA. It was like the late eighties. There was a lot of weird crime. We had a bullet go through my window one time. We had a Molotov cocktail get thrown in a car outside our house. And we lived in a, you know, pretty fancy neighborhood and they just, uh, but even scared. so there's gang stuff going on. Yeah. There was a gang shot up a little league game that one of my classmates was playing in and they had to like crawl off the field. I mean, like all these things happened like in a short period of time. And they said, we need to raise this kid somewhere normal. So, so you yes, were a little so guy when this was happening. I was five, six, seven. I was seven when we moved from LA. So, so yeah, so we went to the vineyard and just had a regular life. He really pretty much sort of quit the business for a, a long time. Um, so it was interesting to have this kind of famous sort of dad, but also have a, a very normal, almost blue collar kind of existence for a while on the vineyard. And that was kind of before you could telecommute and stuff where they exactly. could have kept riding. He could have, if yeah. it was now, they if could have just now, kept he could have been a showrunner probably from the vineyard, you know? Yeah. yeah. But what he did or what they both did, or she was a writer also. Your mom's a yeah. writer, yeah. obviously. And then, so they, they just retired from from that i mean my they still did so they still wrote i mean my dad still did creative things my mom still did creative things but they had to it was sort of like most people earlier in their careers is the reverse it's like they sort of had to get day jobs again you know my mom did real estate stuff uh my dad helped out various people in their local businesses like helped manage a bakery helped, he was like a produce manager at um at this place, the Chillmark store, where like all these famous people would come in that he would know from Hollywood. Wow. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, and this guy, you have to feel, did you, I mean, did you know they moved for you? Cause they wanted to raise you in a place that was safer. And yeah. Warmer? They said it enough times that it stuck. <laughs> <laughs> We're moving. I have to go work at the produce section for you, Charlie. The electricity is off because of you, you little shit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but did you take that on? Um, no, I, I, I always thought it was, <laughs> and, and to their credit, it was a fantastic childhood. I mean, I went from LA where I literally couldn't go outside the house without supervision to seven years old here's a bike that i learned how to ride go ride around the neighborhood with your friends i mean i was just i would just go i would just disappear nice yeah yeah so, so that was like the that was the yeah, really was great. great part about it the autonomy yeah. and just getting able to explore be your totally. own person yeah but then you ended up back in in la yeah what did you study in college? What did you? I went to film school at Boston University, studied screenwriting, and so I, I always wanted to get into that. And then that led to writing jokes. Led to realizing I would always regret it if I didn't try telling them too. So that's what led to stand up. That's so um, cool. Did you do stand up before your dad, or how did it work that you're doing now as a duo? Sometimes my dad started as a stand up in the 
in the 70s in New York City, he came up with like Jimmy Walker and Steve Landisberg and Richard Lewis. Like those are all his oh, people. Those are that. all his friends. Um, David Brenner, like that. That was like Jay Leno and Letterman were like at the, you know, at the improv and comedy store when he moved out there after. But yeah, he started as a stand up. And the reason he became a writer is he was struggling financially as a, as a young comic and larger name comics would say, Hey, I like that bit about this thing. Can I buy it off you? And then he realized he could sell jokes and he sold like his whole act and it didn't have an act anymore. Oh. And basically was like, Oh, well, I guess I'll just become a writer because like my act is gone. Oh. I mean, you know, it was probably a little more nuanced than that, but, no, but that... yeah, he, he went from that to, he took some random gig and I think Cincinnati and, uh, uh, sort of writing like a radio thing or something. And then he had a choice to either go to LA or New York and he had, uh, Penny Marshall and Rob Reiner had seen him. He grew up in the same neighborhood as Penny Marshall and Gary Marshall, so he knew them a little bit from there. So he, they had seen him do stand-up and say, if you ever need a place to stay, you can crash on our couch. So he, he crashed on Rob Reiner's couch uh, in L.A., and then that led to he had a spec script for All in the Family that um, wow. they got to Gary, and Gary liked it and got him an apprentice writer job in Happy Days, and that was like his big break. That's such a cool story. Yeah. I love yeah. all that. I, I, does it feel like you're in his shadow or do you feel like you're your own person now? I it mean, feels, yeah, it, it kind of did in the beginning. It was weird because I did, I compared myself a lot to him in the beginning, you know, and I, there were like these irrational things. Like he got his big break when he was 29. So I remember when I like turned 29 and 30 and like hadn't gotten a break in Hollywood, I was like, uh oh, you know, like, like it, like that. Hard weird, not to compare. Yeah. Hard not to compare. Um, but then, like, as most people evolve and most, like, you know, when, when you're a healthy individual, uh, you realize that, like, none of that stuff matters. You know, like, you could, yeah, you could get really famous and then have stalkers and death threats. And, like, there's all t types of bad stuff that happen, too. So I really evolve more as, like, I want to be creative and my own boss and have a good life and be happy. And there's a lot of different ways that can happen. And you can also be deeply unhappy. I worked for a lot of people out in L.A. who were incredibly successful and just terribly unhappy miserable miserable people oh. so i knew that like that wasn't necessarily always a good path too so that kind of helped with the comparison thing and oh i bet um, i love this perspective i love yeah. that you have that perspective yeah that you saw the good and the bad parts of fame first of all yeah because it is risky getting exposed to yeah. everyone and i don't think people realize that. i think the young people out there that want to be like super famous and have like billions of followers or whatever they don't fully appreciate what's taken from you when you gain all that you know that yeah. having to have the bodyguards all the time having zero privacy not being able to sit in a room and record a podcast without camera people taking pictures through your window. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And then the other part of it that I've thought of, even just with my little like couple of videos that are going a little viral in this niche market of nursing. And I'm like, Ooh, I don't want to get boxed in. Yeah. Sure. I want to be, cause I'm, I love all kinds of things that but, I, in my act that I talk yeah. about in different, sure. I, every venue I sort of size up what is wanted here? I, I don't know if it's a codependency or intuition or a combination of all that, but I love that I get to go and talk with, like I'm looking forward to our gig that we're going to do yeah. here, that people don't know who I am and that I'll get to just let it, you know, be whatever it wants to be rather totally. than when they come and expect you to be this note. Like you have to, yeah. once you get famous or you're known for something or you have to always yeah. present in the same, or there's like, expect you to be the same person every show it's a good point that's kind of the new typecasting you know they used to have like actors who get typecast being on a on a tv show it's like yeah i hear what you're saying it's like oh yeah no that person's just they do the funny thing about you know tennis or whatever that's what they do <laughs> yeah. or, you know or that kind of comic only talks about family or they always or have this energy you know which yeah. i i mean but th that's one other component of it but then the, the sacrifices for your private life and I love that you've chosen to live in a place that's beautiful and you're near the Appalachian Trail, you have these beautiful yeah. mountains and privacy and yet you get to have this creative life. Totally. It sounds like pretty dreamy. It's great. And you get yeah. to create your own gigs. And yeah, and I can, you know, to your point about if my dad had this existence now, I I do feel very empowered to still have a career in show business from here. I mean, I'm still developing things and writing things and 
get traction periodically in ways that it doesn't matter that I'm not in LA anymore or New York City. So it's pretty awesome in that regard. Really awesome. And I think it is getting less LA, New York centric, especially with social media. Yes. And now that there aren't these gatekeepers totally. that are saying, here's what Hollywood's looking for right yeah. now. You don't, hey, there, so many people are just emerging as individuals and. Totally. Yeah. And then you, so you did go to LA and you worked at Castle Rock is that yeah. that's a production company owned by yeah so that was Rob Reiner's company so that was a great um you know thanks to my dad sleeping on that couch he paid his dues so I was able when I went out to LA one you know he called Rob and said hey my son's moving out do you mind if he calls if there's work or whatever and he said sure I'm call this person I'm starting this movie called The Bucket List it was with Jack Nicholson Morgan Freeman so Wow. that he directed so my first job was a production assistant on that movie which was wow. incredible and of course like the other production assistants like looked at me side-eyed the whole time because they, they called me like a political hire and like all these like you know so you i mean to... it was it was nepotism like it really it really was um but i worked hard and i was good i wasn't an asshole i wasn't like a, a shitty worker you weren't coming in there twiddling your thumbs yeah and you really were motivated and yeah. you had substance behind you you went yeah. to school and yeah you, and being raised by your dad in that environment you already knew rob reiner yeah it was you know a little bit i never really met him as like a as like more than probably a baby so i it was funny he actually didn't even know i was working on the movie until like day eight or nine or ten because i remember if there was some <laughs> other guy my dad knew and i mentioned his name he said oh say hi i know that guy who's his producing partner so i said oh my dad says hi and I told him who my dad was. And then Rob later that day was like, you're Marty Nadler's son. <laughs> it, was just like, it was kind of funny to show just how distant people can get. Like, yeah, call this guy, but they don't need to follow up. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. He they just give game. you the, they just give you the phone number yeah, and then exactly. you take it from there. Exactly. And it opens the door. I mean, if I had a terrible interview, could have, you know, never. You had, yeah, again. you had to stay like you, it was, it was yours to lose basically. Yeah. And you could have lost it if you didn't have the substance behind yeah. it. So I just want to give you props. Thank you. Yeah. No, you deserve yeah. it. And yeah, so much about Hollywood is about opening doors. I know when totally. I lived out there for about, the, I was going to say, the length of time of your power outage, I was out <laughs> <laughs> I know, Nancy, stop. I was out there, oh gosh, just a few months. I fell in love with a stand-up comedian. She was on Letterman and Tonight Show. And I really crushed on her talent. I can't deny that. But she also told me she loved my talent, which yeah. I was... I mean, very flattered. Yeah, for and sure. And then she had these famous ex-girlfriends. So she said, and all of them, like this was my first girlfriend. So I had just been divorced, I mean, a few months at this point. Yeah. And I worked with her. And what is my the point of the story? Oh, yeah. Just, it is so much who you know out there. Yeah, it really And is. so I, she was in recovery. I went to some open AA meetings, and that's how codependent I am, that she asked me to stop drinking so that... She never, even when I was touring, like we didn't live in the same city at the, at first. And yeah. I, I would just, t we talked on the phone back when cell phone bills, I mean, I had like $400 cell phone bills. But the point is, she's like, I just don't like talking to you if you've had a cocktail. So do you mind? I was like, no, I don't mind. So that's how mm -hmm. I'm so codependent. I, <laughs> I went to AA, they were open AA meetings, but still, but all my point is everyone out there. If because she was sort of famous, then I didn't. The feeling in my body was these people don't want to know me. They want to know me to get to her. Uh, like they would yeah. ask me questions and are I, you in? I mean, I really I hated that too. With it. you and working for Rob, people would do that. Yeah, you could feel it. And yeah. then it's, but then you don't know. Wait. It, it also, though, <laughs> this is how naive I was. They'd say, "Are you in the business?" And I'd go, "What business?" <laughs> I mean, the, t the stove and tile business, the, the you know, lawn mowing business. What are you looking for here? I mean, that's how naive I was. <laughs> yes, I'm a lesbian. That's, that's what you the, mean, right? I'm in the I'm a, I'm in the lesbian business right now. Right now, I have to say now, <laughs> everything's stress. now that I've retired. Actually, I was fired. It's a long story, but anyway, but something came to me a minute ago because my ADHD kicks in pretty hard. Let me think now. You were saying. So you got in the like, yeah, it's about yeah, opening the doors. So I got the in the door, and then that led to being like a front office assistant for Castle Rock, and then I finally became more of an assistant to other people, and then I was Rob's executive assistant for a year at the end, and it was great. But at that point, I'd been working in those capacities for a long time, and then I stand up had been doing okay. Like I got into my first festival, I did the Laugh Track Festival in Denver um, in 2012, and I just 
Well, you know, when you're new in comedy, it's like you kill a couple times, you get into a festival and you're like, oh, I'm a comic now. So I should just quit my job and focus on that, which is, I guess, I mean, I saved up money and stuff. So in hindsight, it wasn't exactly the greatest move, but I had a great year just sort of getting better and. You know, I think it's great to writing, try it out so. too and just see yeah. do I like this lifestyle? Exactly. Do I like being a road comic driving all around? Yeah. Scraping together. I mean, I man, I did that for for a decade. I yeah. worked all these like I was saying, you know, funny bones and improvs and clubs anywhere that and I was lucky back then. Anyway, I don't need to make it about me, but I'm just saying I always said I like beans and rice. Yeah. So all I need, I had a Honda Accord, did not need much uh, maintenance. You know, it had good gas mileage. I totally. slept in my car a lot. Yeah. But yeah, it's the no, passion. I, you got to, how much passion totally. do you have for this? You and gotta, it's all relative. It's so funny too. Like even um, now that I produce comedy shows, like I just love being booked now, you know, because it's like when you produce a show, there's so many things to worry about. You got to be the one to talk to the drunk idiot, telling them to be quiet. So it's like, now, even if a job sucks when I show up and I'm doing it, it's like, oh, no, this is great. I actually just get to show up and do comedy and yeah. I don't have to, like, move chairs. You know, it's like amazing. I know. It's a lot producing a show. Yeah. I mean, I am not very good at it and I get I get anxious about it. And I do private gigs sometimes where I'm sort of a one one yeah. person band where I bring the lights and the sound. And yeah. I do go in and re we were talking about that, rearrange the room before. You have to. I mean, that's huge. Set yeah, it up for success. To. And I, I've gotten better at telling them, look, someone has to introduce me. Here's how the introduction. I'll even make them imitate how I do the introduction because <laughs> people are terrible at introductions. Oh, they're terrible. They don't. No, she told me to say this. Oh, you know, like yes. that. I go, whatever you do, don't say she told me to say this. <laughs> here's how the. Uh -huh. And it's just three beats. But uh -huh. this, this. And then here's the punchline. Yeah. Two credits and a punchline. You know what I've been doing at the, the last college I did? I introduced myself from behind like an easel. You did the voice of God? I just, but, but it wasn't even like voice of God because I did that once at a ski resort. I went to the second floor and I introduced myself like I was someone else. But this one, they saw me. I just walked behind this like, oh, you just, this like you wheelable just a... cart. And I was just like, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a young comedian here tonight. You know, just... Cause, because it's just, and it wasn't even that successful, but it was better than like the student life volunteer who's like, okay, um, thanks for coming. There's a comic. His name is Charlie. Now they're putting hands together. It's like, yeah. That's the intro is. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's actually a good technique. And then just start the energy where you want it. Yeah. Take control of it. And, but we do, we've had to, we've had to adapt to a lot of different environments. Totally. But then you found out, so you toured, and then you were like, ah, you know what? I actually like a little more of a stable. Whatever. It wasn't even touring. That was the thing. I wasn't even ready. You know what okay. I mean? Like, I could see myself like. You didn't have 30 I, minutes yet? No. Okay. I'm finally at the time now in my career where, like, I, you know, I still have, like, day job type work, and I'm fortunate for it. I'm at the time now where, like, I could maybe make that plunge and piece it together and still be financially okay. But even now, I'm like, eh, I still want to wait a little bit. But at that point, it was like, I was an open mic comic who did one cool festival. I got a seven-minute spot at the Bug Theater and thought, and, like, did well and was like, oh, this is the best, you know? But, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I basically was like, well, I'm going to have to just get out and do more stand-up and write a movie and I just sort of, like, it was like a gambler's mentality. I was like, I'll just take a year and it'll work out. And it it helped me develop quicker, but it didn't work out. You know, I spent like 40 grand. Oh yeah. It's, you can throw some money yeah. at it. I mean, I would travel. I went to Australia. I went to like four different people's weddings and bachelor parties. I visited <laughs> my parents. Like, yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't exactly. It's almost like your, uh, gap year. Do you need to ch check your um, phone? Sir. Oh, it's, um, it's my mom. I'll call her back. She knew, she knew we were talking she knew, about her. She knew we were She's talking about psychic, probably. Sorry, Mom. I love you. I'll call you back later. <laughs> did, did she hear you say that? <laughs> she will. She listens to the podcast. Well, she probably will. She's very supportive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is like everyone, this is the thing I've learned now that your mom called and I'm thinking she's going to listen to the podcast. Let's, <laughs> let's, I do want to say this about everyone. Yeah. Like I read a book called living in love with yourself, but the premise of this book was everyone is doing their best. Yeah. And that's the truth. Totally. She did her very best. Your dad did his very best. Totally. And yet obviously every generation, we are trying to stop the generational trauma from the preceding generation. Yeah. We're doing our best. Totally. And I mean, I do see like trying to have the sense of normalcy 
and it, it's got to be harder not to have siblings because if you yeah. had siblings to bounce stuff off of going hey this is kind of weird yeah it's weird for me too sure but you're talking to your just your cat i mean cats are pretty cool but they can't cool, really but console you the way of maybe no. a, or even rib you the way a sibling sometimes can. they can though like one great <laughs> thing about cat is like there's been a couple times where i've like been very sad about something like a death or something actually like a death of a cat's kind of a pyramid scheme recently i got very sad about the death of our cat yeah uh it was an anniversary of her death and it just sort of took me by surprise and they they know when you're really upset like they yeah. they comforted me in a way that was different than usually just hanging around so they're pretty attuned with that yeah kind of stuff. i i really want to retract my last statement and say they can't console you i mean more in the same way that well they like can't talking, verbally they can't yeah. but no man emotionally absolutely yeah. and i feel like they also kind of when even just walking through a room i feel like they kind of sure shake up the like the vibe a little bit and yeah well even the fact that we're sitting here with these two xlr cables i thought this guy who's sleeping right now would just be terrorizing our setup like i did not have faith that these (laughs) cables would not be just shiny objects to him so so i mean even just maybe he just had a feeling that this conversation would be it needed to happen exactly no i i do i do believe in animals being part of the family and part of our and I, again, back to my spiritual thing, part of my soul family. Yeah. But isn't it, that is, so you did have the animals yep. that were with you when you were going through that hard time. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. And so did we get where we needed to go with your traumedy? Did you want to, did you want to riff on any more about the, how to talk about the, somebody like getting somebody at a birthday party, <laughs> yeah. dropping a, like a, you know. Yeah, I think I think I do. I mean, I think I just need to like, you know, jot some things down. I mean, I, the, all the bones of of the good stuff are there. I think this, you know, I've talked about the actual events surrounding it and a little bit about what it was like to live in that way. But I think, I think what I need to do next is talk about how it made me feel and what I went through and find the humor in that a little more because it's more about the humor of the situations, which yeah, which is good material, but. You know, it definitely like messed me up in ways that I think are going to be productive on the stage eventually. But well, and I think that one of the things yeah, I th- that you could play with too is having well, you're almost like a spy. Like you have yeah. to have the secret life, and you're you're learning how to exile a part of you. Yeah, and that's back to the unlocking the fucked up parts but also integrating the exile parts yeah that part of you that was so sad that was so scared and sad about the you know just on shaky ground yeah and then you you know that part of you you had to put in a little compartment and go okay that part can't come out right now i've got to also for my parents also want me like y'all were kind of having to do the same dance inside and yeah, no, that's true. I like the secret aspect. I just thought of something like, you know, people would say, I heard your parents are divorced, and I would say, no, their marriage is just in witness protection. <laughs> <laughs> Making up a really good story. Yeah, yeah man. We know, we know too much. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to know what we know. Their love is so strong that they there's a force field in between them that <laughs> causes them to be in separate rooms. And it turns out that their love is really strong. Like you were saying, For sure. even today yes. they yes, they get together. And yeah, yeah. There is something transcendent of the classic marriage. Totally. Yeah. Hey, I <laughs> with my son. I and I have only one child. He has. A, it's a lot of responsibility. I think for a kid with with me. Even I'll, I have to say it out loud. You are not responsible for making me happy. Yeah. But he likes to. He likes sure. to make me laugh. Yeah. And I actually have empowered him when I would catch my reflection in my phone that my face is like. It's beyond resting bitch face. It is resting like angry. I mean, it is like, I'm like scared and angry that like something like impending doom face. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know I look like this. My son's having to see this. So no wonder he's trying to like break the tension. Yeah. And so I told him, hey man, if you see me like that, that's probably my inner child is really scared. Know that it's not about you. Sure. So now like literally sometimes will mock me. Like if I'm trying to get out the door to a gig and I'm trying to make him dinner and empty the dishwasher and do these other things as a single parent and he'll go, is she scared mama? 
he kind of like does a baby talk I mean like and it does it it takes me out but then I'm like man have I made him responsible I don't know it's just I don't know it feels like he has a very healthy he's using humor to deal with something that like some people would repress or deal with in a different way that sounds very well adjusted to me I, I just try to verbalize out loud, like, hey, man, you are not responsible for my happiness. But he cannot, he came to me this way, you yeah. know? He just came to me with wanting every day to make it light. Did you feel but, like you came with a responsibility to lighten tensions or? No, well, that's a problem. My parents were both so funny and like, and had good stories. So I was also just always in that, in their shadow in that way as a young kid. My dad always f- tells this funny story where he's like, He's always like, I never knew Charlie was funny. His friends would come up to me and say, your son's really funny. And I was like, I was like, yeah, you probably shouldn't like tell people that story because it makes it, it makes people think that you didn't hang out around me or whatever. But, but I see what he means. Cause it's like, if we were around a table, like they would just take up so much of the, like of the, the funny oxygen, the funny oxygen. Yeah. yeah. And well, also it's, there's a part of us like, what's my role? I'm the audience. Right. Exactly. Or yeah. If they have this dynamic. Yeah. They've got this really well-developed sense of humor where they just think. I yeah. mean, if he's writing all the time like that, you just start thinking in yeah, and funny rhythm. And there's no light at the dinner table lighting him to shut the fuck up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Give your dad the light. <laughs> yeah, man. And now... You have inter- 40 minutes over this pasta. Like, please. <laughs> other people on the line up here. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great analogy where yeah. it would have been great if... There had been an MC in your in your family, a host yeah. that was like, and now at least let rotate, you know, let's <laughs> yeah. let we're all co-headliners in this, you know, but yeah. they were the headliners and you were the opening act and not even that you were really more the audience probably yeah. or the observer. You were, you were the, you just observed, but did you start, I mean, you must, you must just think that way too. Now that you grew up with them, like you're always thinking in. I really, I feel it's the same way when you grow up around someone who's very handy and you learn how to like fix things around the house. Like I, I do think that being around my parents just gave me like just innate skills around that kind of stuff. Like just the ability, sometimes just stuff pops into one's head in a way where it's like, that's, I don't know. That's something else. That's not really, yeah, that's not really my doing. Well, it's imprinting. It's just, that's our language. Yeah. Our language is humor. Yeah. Yeah. And yet can, they can also go into more of the heart energy oh, or for sure. they, yeah, oh, yeah they'll drop 100%. in yeah 100%. yeah yeah oh oh this has been good i yeah it's great i appreciate you i love that you too we dropped in and let's record our set on saturday maybe we can double dare each other to do a little bit somewhere in the middle about something involving oh, one of the yeah. things we talked about oh i like that it's a little little double dare yeah a little comedy right. double dare yeah okay well, i'm gonna write I'm going to do the whole thing about no electricity. Uh, For forget minutes. the middle of the set. Yeah, yeah. No. 30 minutes, power out. The, the, all that happened in that 30 minutes, <laughs> that the processing, the awareness, the shock. The just, it's ironic to be shocked when the power was out. <laughs> okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm pushing it. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you, Charlie Nadler. How do people thank reach you, you if they want to? You're in the Berkshires. Yep. And can they do, can they find you for comedy and producing and writing and what all do you do? Yeah, you can contact me on charlienadler.com. You can follow me on social media at charliegonadler on all the things. Do you write for people too? Do you write or is that your thing? I do some screenwriting stuff. I have a a great company I co-founded with a friend called Laugh Dealers where we do, and you did a Laugh Dealers virtual show once for me. So we used to do virtual shows during the pandemic and now we do some other business consulting and um, trainings and things like that. So laughdealers.com. So you like to help people bring humor into their business and stuff like that? Yeah, exactly. So we do some ghost. We've, we've done some writing for people in that capacity. I don't write for other comics. Um, except just giving people, I do the Denver thing you were talking about. I'm counting about. I give on people it to, tags. Uh, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I give people tags and do like workshop oh, things, it. but, um, that. but yeah, no, I don't, I don't like get paid to write for other comics, but, but I write projects for screen that hopefully will come to fruition. That's like still the dream after graduating film school. I still want to write movies and TV shows and yes. work on that stuff. So, all right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank and you. I look forward to our show on Saturday. Yeah, me too. I'm pumped. Oh, that was fun. I want to thank my guest, Charlie Nadler. 
See his contact information in the show notes. I want to thank my son, Nathaniel Norton, for putting together music tracks for for Traumedy. Get a hold of me. Hey, reach out through my website, nancynorton.tv, through the Facebook page. Oh, SpeakPipe. I keep talking about my SpeakPipe. Do not confuse my SpeakPipe with my cake hole. But I do have speakpipe.com forward slash Traumedy. I would love to hear how how you're doing or maybe just leave me a voice message. Tell me if this podcast is helping you and how we could do better, what you need. Don't compare your trauma to other people's trauma. It's just a very personal experience when we get overwhelmed in different ways. And let me, let me send you off with a nice, slow, deep breath. Have a great week. No matter what, keep laughing. And remember, it's Traumedy with Nancy Norton. New episode every Tuesday.